It's August 1946. Elder Ezra Taft Benson of the Quorum of the Twelve travels through the rubble of World War II, bringing aid from the saints in North America to people in Europe. In the Netherlands, Dutch saints are asked to give their potato crop to bitter enemies who are now starving. Can they do this? These stories of hope and charity are next in Chapter 32, Brothers and Sisters. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Joining us today is Matt McBride, Director of Publications in the Church History Department. Thank you for joining us today and welcome back to the podcast. Excited to be here, as usual. Well, Matt, before we begin, I was thinking that some of our listeners might be interested to know some lesser known facts about saints. And given your role in the project, I wonder if you could give us some insight into how the chapter illustrations came about and any other interesting tidbits about who produced them and so on. Sure. From a very early stage in this project, we knew that we wanted people who read Saints to enjoy reading it the way they would enjoy reading their favorite novel. And of course, part of what that looks like is you write it in a storytelling style with point of view characters and with attention to details about how the story is constructed in a way that makes it enjoyable to read the way a novel reads. But our attention to that point goes beyond just the words on the page. The entire design of the book is created to look and feel like a novel. And the whole experience should feel like something that you want to kick back on the couch and open up and read. It's not like a textbook or something where you're leaning forward. It needs to feel like a good book that you're just enjoying. Part of what that means is the typography, the way that the book is typeset, the way that it's constructed all together. It's as if it looks like you've just opened up a novel. And a lot of novels, especially novels that are produced for the audience that we hope to engage with saints, which would be everybody, of course, all church members and others who are interested, but in particular, young adults. A lot of novels produced for that audience will use artwork in the same way that we have with Saints. And so we had discussions very early on about the style and the approach that we might take providing some kind of a small art piece at the beginning of each chapter that would convey something about the chapter. We also designed the covers to look like a great novel. And we were really fortunate to work with a really talented artist, Greg Newbold, to produce the cover art for those books. And so those beautiful illustrations that we have of the temples, of the Nabu Temple, the Salt Lake Temple, the Swiss Temple, and the temples that will be represented on Volume 4's cover, that artwork was produced by Greg Newbold. And he did a wonderful job of capturing the feeling and the tone that we wanted saints to have. And when we decided, hey, let's create these little pictures that go at the beginning of each chapter, we said, well, we're going back to the same artist because he gets the project, he knows the style. And so Greg Newbold, again, is the one who created each one of those little pictures with input from the team. So we would talk as a team and make some recommendations based on the content of the chapter and the message that's sometimes embedded in the story. Sometimes there'll be an object or a location or something about that chapter that we think is especially representative or speaks to the message of the chapter and the emphasis of the chapter. We would give those suggestions to Greg. And then Greg, being the talented artist that he is, did such a wonderful job of creating those. 
We hope people enjoy them. It's just a, such a nice touch, and it's a great way to start to clue you in right from the very first thing that you see when you flip the page to the next chapter to clue you in to what's coming. Yeah, I love the artwork. I think it adds a really special element, and especially the cover art. It's beautiful. So thanks for sharing that with us. I think our listeners will be interested to know that. Well, Matt, as we jump into this chapter, will you begin by telling us about the challenges Elder Benson was facing with regards to his trip to Europe? Yeah, I think after what we've been through the past couple of years with the COVID pandemic and some of the travel restrictions and challenges that we faced, those who have tried to travel recently, I think we might have some empathy for some of the challenges that Elder Benson would have faced at that moment in a way that maybe we wouldn't had we not gone through this experience. But for anyone to travel to Europe from the United States at the close of World War II, you couldn't just go on the Expedia website and buy a ticket and fly over there and land and be able to move about freely and do what you want to do the way you might be able to now. The continent is just absolutely devastated. It's devastated in every way that you can think of. The infrastructure is destroyed in parts of Europe. So there's just no way to get from one town to the next. And so this is a really, really challenging trip. And one of the things you have to recognize too is that a lot of Europe, Germany in particular, when Elder Benson goes there, is still under the control of Allied military. The wars just ended. There's still this really strong military presence. And even where there is infrastructure, it's not that easy for you to just move around freely from place to place to place, visit people and do whatever you want. You've got military checkpoints. You've got all of these things that you need to worry about. In fact, one of the questions that Elder Benson has to answer really early on when he arrives is, how am I going to navigate those military checkpoints as I move from country to country? And that's one of the reasons why he ends up with Howard Badger as one of his escorts. So he has a companion who's a member of the church from Europe, Frederick Babel, who's going to travel with him. But then he also needs somebody who is an officer in the Allied military. This Badger was a chaplain, I believe, and was able to help Elder Benson to be able to navigate that particular challenge. But just a host of problems and challenges, if you can imagine, trying to travel into a war-devastated continent and region and try to figure out how to get around when you may not have something as simple as a road. Thank you for giving us that additional context into what he was experiencing at the time. Well, James, we're so lucky to have your background too, especially with the research you've done on this section. So we have a question for you. Can you tell us how Latter-day Saints and others reacted to this aid that was given? Sure. I think Matt's done a really good job of explaining the conditions. We know that this is a harsh life in Germany and in some of these other war-torn areas. But we know that the saints were in some cases starving, struggling, still suffering with the post-war conditions. And this was a lifeline for many of them. And the church aid was aimed at the membership, but also for others as well, as circumstances allowed. But the fact that it was able to get there at all is miraculous, given the lack of transport. Elder Benson being able to even get around, having to negotiate to get a vehicle and then having to get permits, they would fill their pockets and take as much as they could in cars. So when they went into Germany, and I remember researching their first trip into Germany not long after arriving in Europe. And 
they hear that there's a conference in Karlsruhe, Germany, and they are driving through just mounds of rubble. And the Germans are starting to try and clear away the devastation. And they ask people and they point them in these directions. And then they hear the singing from the conference. And they go and they find these people. And I interviewed a lady who was there. She was a young girl. Her father was the branch president. They were just so grateful to see them. And they shared what goods they had with them and promised them more aid. They were incredibly grateful. At times, some of the aid maybe was more useful than others. There were certain products that were in very short supply. But these were people who were able to know that their church loved them, not just in prayers and nice words, but they were backing it up with action, showing that it is a gospel of action. So I'm sure as the church has matured over the years, they would do it again in a heartbeat for members who need that aid. And we see it in the efforts of the church today with humanitarian services. And we see this in the chapter. These are people who've been away from the brethren. They haven't had contact with senior leaders in the church for quite some time. They've had that isolation and they were excited to see them. They were just so glad that they'd come to try and find them. And Elder Benson was the right man at the right time in the right place to go and fulfill this task. His skills and talents was a real blessing to the saints in Europe as they got Back on their feet. One thing I might say is this. One of the really cool things about Elder Benson's trip to Europe is the way that it was documented. There's a phenomenal photograph collection of this trip. And the photography's good enough that you can you can see the faces and the expressions on the faces of the saints as they're meeting together after the war. You can almost just sense the relief on the part of the saints. Anyway, amazing collection. And one of the cool things that we're able to do now in volume three that we, we haven't done in previous volumes because we now have so much photography from this time period is we're able to embed links into the digital edition that will be in the Gospel Library app. And you'll be able to see a few of those photographs from the collection of photographs that were taken during Elder Benson's trip to Europe. It's awesome. And in the notes, you'll have a link to be able to see the entire collection on the Church History Catalog. That's worth your time. That'll be very cool. Thank you for sharing that with us. The other story that really stands out in relation to this aid, and that's the Dutch potato story. And Matt, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about Cornelius Zappai, who he was, and how he came to be in the Netherlands. Cornelius Zappai was a Dutch convert to the church who had moved to the United States and lived in Salt Lake for some time. But he was called to return to his homeland at this really crucial moment to be the mission president in the Netherlands. And he faces a real challenge when he gets there, because on top of the devastation that we talked about before and some of the economic problems and infrastructure problems and the need to rebuild just everything, he's also got to figure out how to rebuild the church in the Netherlands. And Part of that, of course, is just finding everybody, making sure everyone's okay. They generally had a good sense and, and took good care of each other during the war. But one of the challenges that you face in that situation, uh, you have to remember that the Netherlands had been occupied during the war for several years. And when you're occupied, <laughs> that's a really, really difficult challenge. And individuals have to make choices for themselves for their families about the best way to proceed to protect yourself, to protect your family, protect your interests, 
And not everybody answers those questions in the same way. And this is something that you see everywhere during the war, but you'll have individuals in these occupied areas that feel like the best way to protect their children, their wives, their family is to collaborate, to collaborate with the regime that is currently occupying or is in power. You don't know if or when they ever won't be in power. Keep that in mind. We have the benefit now of looking back and saying, well, the National Socialist regime in Germany, they're on their way out. Well, that wasn't clear to everybody all the time. And so you have members of the church, even in the Netherlands, that are making those really difficult moral calculations about what to do. Of course, there were others who resisted, and it was important to them to find a way to resist. I have in-laws and family who experienced this in France during the war. You have individuals who are part of the resistance. You have others that are more inclined to collaborate. And so those are just very, very difficult personal and family choices that members are having to make. But when you all come together into a branch and a branch meeting, and you recognize that these divisions exist and these differences in the way that the different individuals and families approach those hard questions, you start to get some bad feelings. And this is what President Zappai faced. That's what he has to figure out when he arrives there as the mission president. And your explanation makes sense that everyone's just trying to do what's best for their family according to their situation, according to their perspective. So I appreciate you pointing that out because it's helpful in understanding in history, but also now, like you said. Well, another character that we read about in this chapter, we would just love to know more about him. So Matt, can you tell us what are some of the things that Peter Vlam was involved in after the war? Oh, Peter Vlam is such an interesting person, has such an interesting story. He's a naval officer in the Netherlands uh, before the war. He spends a substantial part of the war in a prison camp in the custody of Germans. And one of the fun side stories to that is that he spends a lot of time preaching the gospel <laughs> to his fellow inmates in the camp, and he's instrumental in the conversion of a couple of people who go on to be important church leaders in the Netherlands during that experience in the camp. He's eventually released. He returns home. The war ends. And Peter Flom is somebody who had been a well-known member of the church in the Netherlands for some time. The members knew him. They also knew of his experience during the war, knew that he had been in the camp, knew about the challenges that that posed for his family to have him be away like that. So Peter Vlam is somebody who becomes really instrumental in one of the important stories that we tell in Volume 3, and that is the story that involves him and involves President Zappai and a whole host of church members in the Netherlands. And the question is the same one that we talked about before. How do we heal that division that exists in the church? President Zappai has an idea. Let's start doing things together again. Let's start working together Let's do something productive that will be beneficial to all of us, and let's do it together. And so he creates a project where they try to involve as many members of the church as they can in parts of the Netherlands to find land that's available and some seed potato that they could get inexpensively. They couldn't get full-size potatoes as easily, but they could get seed potatoes. And they work together to plant a bunch of potatoes. <laughs> this is kind of like a, okay... Let's all work on a thing together. Even though sometimes we don't want to sit next to each other in sacrament meeting, let's all go out into the field and let's do something productive together. Let's work together. 
so this is President Zappai's idea. Now I'm coming back to Peter. <laughs> but there's a moment in this story where the mission president in Germany, Walter Stover, comes to talk to President Zappai. And he talks about the conditions in Germany, the struggle that Latter-day Saints are having in Germany to feed themselves. And President Zappai wonders if there's not something that members of the Netherlands could do to help. I think it's important that President Zappai comes at the time he does to have somebody who's Dutch, but who has lived in the United States, maybe hasn't experienced the deprivation and the challenges that his brothers and sisters in the church in the Netherlands faced during the war, and is able to kind of look at that problem with a lot of empathy for them as a Dutch member of the church, but as somebody who had a little bit of distance from the most severe parts of the suffering. And he can look at it kind of from that vantage and say, here's something we could do. And he decides that he would like the members in the Netherlands to donate their potato harvest to members in Germany who, based on President Stover's account, may be needed even more than the members in the Netherlands do. Now, why is Peter Vlaam important in this calculation? And this, this is where Peter is an important figure. He's a counselor to President Zephi in the mission presidency. And President Zephi asks him if he would be willing to go and try to persuade members in the Netherlands to donate their potatoes to people in Germany. And Peter Vlaam is somebody, because of his reputation, because of his experience during the war, he's someone who's able to speak to them persuasively from the position of someone who has experienced the worst that the war could offer and say, this is important. This is something we need to do. And so that's how Peter Flom comes into this story. Well, no, Peter seems to have been an incredibly spiritual and religious person. He has a firm testimony of the gospel. He goes to these immense lengths at personal cost and personal sacrifice. I mean, after the war, I mean, this is one of the crazy things about his story, is that he is called onto the mission presidency and he's traveling around the place. He's spending huge amounts of time away from his family in the service of the church. And this is just a man who loves his family deeply. I mean, he'll do anything for them. And he loves the Lord and he loves the church. And he's trying to find ways to fulfill his responsibilities to be a light to those who maybe don't have it. And he does a phenomenal job. He's really President Zappai's man to try and win over the reluctant saints who are perhaps holding on to the anger and the hurt that they have from the war. And they manage it. Well, Matt, I wonder if you could just give us some additional insights into how the Dutch saints responded to this request to give of their potatoes to the German saints who they had only recently just been suffering as their military overlords. Yeah, you have to put yourself in their shoes and imagine what that must have felt like. After the occupation, they were scarred by it. And we interviewed a few people about this a few years ago. And when we asked them this exact question, James, if they would share with us how they reacted, how they felt, you could still hear a little bit of that pain and that heard in their voice. And yet, it was just so clear that when the question was put to them, as hard as it might have been at first blush, so many of them saw in this a redemptive opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to, to make a small sacrifice, to do something for somebody that we feel like has harmed us. 
with the recognition that it's going to be good for them and it's going to be good for us. That it's ultimately the right thing to do, the, the Christ-like thing to do. So they do that. And one of the things that became clear too is it's a moment where they're processing the war still and what happened. And this is something that helps them separate what a bad regime had done to them from Germany, German culture, the German people, German Latter-day Saints, their brothers and sisters who are suffering. It would be very easy for them to say, oh, it's Germany. I'm not going to deal with this after what I've been through. But I think this whole experience allows them to start to process that and to separate out what the regime had done from this other beautiful thing which is the wonderful people in Germany, including the members of the church, who had also suffered immensely over the previous five years. And they donated their potatoes. And I mentioned the photographs of President Benson's mission. We also have a wonderful collection of photographs that we will share some of those as well in Saints Volume 3 of President Zapai, of missionaries, and of members in the Netherlands harvesting their potatoes. And you get to see and sense the excitement that they have about this project because they embrace it. And they're able to pull together a substantial shipment of potatoes to give to President Zapai to send to Germany. They really are great photos. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they're so good. Well, Matt, one of the questions I had, because you're right, this becomes such a beautiful story out of such a difficult time. I'm just wondering... Did the German saints reciprocate the kindness shown to them by the Dutch saints? And if so, how did they show that? Well, this is one of the cool things about this. And one of the things that I think is important for us to say at this moment here is the potatoes were meaningful, certainly, to the German saints in the kind of that material sense of we need food. I think it's important to note that Walter Stover, who is the German president of the German mission, out of his own funds purchased a lot more potatoes and food from other places in Europe, brought them into Germany to supplement and add to this offering that the Dutch saints had given. So yes, it did that good of filling their stomachs, filling their bellies. But it also became clear as we interviewed German saints who had been the recipients of that gift from members in the Netherlands, that was communicated to them. They knew where some of the potatoes had come from. And when you talk to them, yes, they were grateful for the potatoes, but the thing that was very clearly touching to them still after several decades had passed was just the thought that there were members of the church, their brothers and sisters that lived somewhere else on the other side of this political divide, on the other side of the battle lines that were thinking of them and had their back. And that they were part of this community that believed in taking care of all of its members. That's what brought the tears to their eyes. So, members in the Netherlands the next year, well, they come back again and they donate more potatoes and they donate herring and they give more. And it just becomes this project that then takes on a life of its own. And one of the things that happens is about eight years after the war ends, there's some severe flooding in the Netherlands. There are dikes that are breached, there's property damage, there's a whole bunch of different challenges that these floods pose in the Netherlands. And one of the beautiful things about the story, just kind of closing the loop here, is that you have members of the church in Germany who had been the recipients of the potatoes and of the herring from the Netherlands just a few years before, now trying to find some way to help members in the Netherlands 
And so they organize as a mission and they begin to donate what they can and put together a fairly substantial care package that they send. Now, we don't know that that care package ended up going directly to church members in need in the Netherlands. What we do know is that the motivation behind the project in Germany it really stemmed from the good feelings that had been generated just those few years before as the Dutch saints had donated food to the German saints. And so now arising out of that feeling of gratitude and as a reciprocal offering, they reach out to the Netherlands and try to help in any way they can. For me, that is at the heart of the gospel. Following the example of Christ, loving our enemies, loving those who've despitefully used us, whatever it might be, when we take that step in reaching out, we are able to not only represent Savior, but start to try to heal the world. And this is an excellent example of how Latter-day Saints were able to take some difficult, some hard steps towards loving others, those who they'd been subject to much suffering as a result of their invasion, but they loved them, even if at first they were doing it out of a sense of duty, and they then progressed to doing it because they want to. But they then knit the hearts of the German saints to theirs, and they helped them. I just think that's beautiful. Like you said, James, it was this great act of charity. It's the kind of thing that when we're at our best, this is what we do as Latter-day Saints. And one of the great things about it was, yes, they provided a service to the German saints. But one of the important lasting effects of the whole project was that it helped to start to heal some of those divides in the church in the Netherlands and kind of put the church in the Netherlands back on a good footing moving forward. Sometimes we talk about the rescue mission after the war of President Benson and of others as primarily about bringing aid, and that was certainly at the center of it. But part of what he's trying to do, too, is to get the church back on a good footing, to get the branches back together, to get them operating, to get them communicating, because we have important work to do. The first thing we do is we figure out how to feed, and we figure out how to clothe, and we figure out how to solve some of those needs, and then we've got to figure out how to get the work of salvation moving again. So I love these stories in the sense that they're accomplishing both objectives. Well, Matt, there might be Latter-day Saints today whose parents, grandparents, maybe even their great-grandparents were involved in this story of sharing potatoes with German saints. And I wonder if you could tell us how you hope Latter-day Saints today might be able to look at this story and learn from it and apply it in their lives. I think there's something really valuable in this story. We've said before that we do live in a fairly divided world. World War II, taken as a whole, is like the greatest cataclysm of the 20th century. And maybe that's not something we experience day in and day out, even though it may feel that way sometimes. But there's so much happening if you're you know, in the news and in so many different ways that really tends to divide. One thing that a story like this can help us do as Latter-day Saints is focus in on the areas where we can very confidently unify. Because so often our divisions and our disagreements and difficulties that we have one with another in the way that we relate over whatever question, I don't want to say they're not important. They're very important, but they are in an important way also secondary to the thing that can unite us as Latter-day Saints, which is our belief in Jesus Christ and His gospel. Let's be disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's figure out a way to 
yeah, to help other people and to live a more Christ-like life. Thanks, Matt. And I hope our listeners and readers of the book might take that same lesson and apply it today. A modern-day Good Samaritan or Widow's Might story is a lesson from our recent history that we can learn from and hopefully motivate us to do good. Well, thank you, Matt, for being here with us today. Again, we really appreciate all of the wonderful insight that you brought and even some personal experience. So thank you. Oh, it was great to be here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.